the National Archives podcast series, In the High Court of Justice, presented by Christopher T. Watts. Order. Order. What I'm going to be talking about uh, this afternoon are the records of the High Court of Justice. In 1875, the previous plethora of courts, which included the Chancery Court and the King's Bench Court, were was dissolved is the nearest way to describe it, and they were merged together into a single High Court of Justice. I say single because there were a couple of small portions that still remained and uh, so on, but the main part is that they were merged together into a single High Court of Justice. And what I'm going to be talking about is the major portion of that, which is the Chancery Division, which effectively had taken on the work of the old Chancery Court. And I'm going to do this by exploring the records just of a single case. You may think, well, that's going to be pretty short talk, isn't it, a single case? Well, if I told you that the single case actually lasted for 49 years, perhaps you'll understand how it gives you a fairly good, I hope, guide into these records. And what it is, is a case called In the Matter of the Estate of John Curry, Deceased. John Curry was a successful and wealthy butcher and ship owner. He had property on Tyneside and Wearside, a place called East Bolden, and some in Edinburgh. He was the fourth of seven children, and he was born in 1820-21 in South Shields, County Durham, and baptised in 1822 at the Anglican Church there. His parents were John Curry and Mary Horsborough. They were, as you might perhaps expect from their surnames of Scottish extraction. And indeed, the first three of their children were baptised in the Scots Church there. Six of those seven children survived into adulthood. So that's their family tree. And we can forget about the youngest, Mary Curry, because she died as an infant. We can also put to the back of our mind, though not forget her, the eldest, Jane, Jane Fletcher, because she had died before John Curry wrote his will. That leaves us four brothers, of which the eldest, Alexander, died between John Curry writing his will and him dying. And it was as a result of his actions that we see this particular case. Now, the key events in this case were, in 1876, John Curry wrote his will, then in 1878, his brother Alexander dies. And he thought it might be a good idea a year later to write a codicil. Well, I hope you may think twice at the end of this talk about writing codicils to wills. Two years later, John Curry dies, and his will was proved quite normally in the probate registry in Durham. But in the same month, Approximately the same date, a statement of claim was filed in the Court of Chancery at Durham. That's one of these splinters that didn't get absorbed by the High Court of Justice, but is only a very peripheral matter to this particular example. But in December, a statement of claim was filed in the High Court of Justice, Chancery Division in London, and that case lasted from 1881 to 1929. And we'll see if we look at John Curry's will. There's nothing spectacular about it. 
I appoint my brother Alexander Curry of the City of Edinburgh in Scotland, Glasscutter, and William Curry of South Shields in the said county of Durham, Shipwright, Robert Curry of South Shields aforesaid Shipwright, and James Curry of South Shields aforesaid Shipwright, executors of this my will and trustees for the purposes hereinafter mentioned. We then go on and see, whereas my brother Alexander Curry, named in the said will, lately died, and I am desirous of appointing a fresh executors and trustees in my said will. Seems fairly, fairly reasonable, the brothers were getting quite elderly. Let's have the next generation act as executors. But he made the mistake of appointing them as trustees, and somewhere down in the fine print of his will, he had given the residue to the trustees. Not quite what he intended. And he'd used the word in place and instead of in his will, in the codicil. His death and the probate are recorded in the normal fashion. The first we know about this was in fact a document which survives in the family, although there should be a copy of it probably amongst the records at Durham, but we've not actually located the court copy, which is a statement of claim in the Chancery Court of Durham. Plaintiffs therefore claim to have the judgment of the court as to the proper construction to be put upon the said will and codicil of the testator and the devises and bequests therein contained and in order and direct accordingly and costs of course. Now the key sources that we are going to be looking at are first of all the cause books. Now those would be fantastic if they had survived because they record every document that was filed, the date and all the appearances in the court would have saved us looking through lots and lots of indexes. But Lord Denning, Master of the Rolls, in the 1960s, decided that they were of no further use to the legal profession and process, and had them destroyed. So we've got to do it all the hard way. There are pleadings, which are one of perhaps six or seven parallel sets of documents that we need to consult. The pleadings are the start of the case, essentially, in legal terms. Decrees and orders, affidavits, giving information from the various parties to the case, depositions, similarly, reports and certificates from the master or chief clerk of the Chancery Division. He would have been ordered to collect and provide certain information and marshal it for the judge to make his decisions. Petitions, which the various parties requested a particular course of action from the court. Master's papers, which are a miscellaneous set of working notes, drafts of orders, drafts of reports, and the like. Exhibits, these are really large-ish in terms of volume material placed before the court. They were usually reclaimed by the person who had provided them, so very few of those actually survive. And a more recent arrival here, or in the process of arriving here, are the records of the Court Funds Office. And the ones I've highlighted in blue are going to be the main ones that we're going to be looking at. And you need, in tracing a case, to work through each of those ones in parallel. They will all have useful information in them. Well, the first thing is to realise that every case in the court has a name, a case name, a cause name. 
And this one is in the matter of the estate of John Curry, deceased, between John Fletcher, James Fletcher and John Dixon, and Mary, his wife, plaintiffs, and Robert Goodall, and Mary Ann, his wife, William Fletcher, and John Curry, defendants. Well, that's a bit of a mouthful, so it gets abbreviated to Re Curry, deceased, Fletcher versus Goodall. And it has with it a number, and that's engraved on my brain, considering the number of documents that I've looked at, 1881C6439. That is the unique file number for the case. Here is one of the cause books that I mentioned. This happens to be the one related to the beginning of the case when a pleadings were filed in the Chancery Court in Durham. So you can see the sort of thing it has there. It gives the names of the various parties, when they appeared, the names of their solicitors. In the almost the right-hand visible column, it gives uh, the nature of the document and the date of filing. On the right-hand side, you'll find any orders or judgments that were made. Effectively an index to all the documents that uh, were relevant to the case. Now, the beginning of the, of the case, in the formal legal sense, are the pleadings. And they consist, as a minimum, of a statement of claim from the plaintiffs and a statement of defence from the defendants. There may be uh, rejoinders and various other follow-ons in particular instances, but those are the two that you'll find, and they're probably limited in most cases, I suspect, to just those two. They're to be found in Pleadings J54, and they're arranged by the date of filing. And that would usually be within six months of the start of the case, and then alphabetically by the plaintiff's name or the cause title. There are indexes, but only for four years. So you have to make use of the filing rule and hope that it's within six months of the start of the case and there wasn't an order that they should be filed at a different date or whatever. They are probably the least interesting of the documents, but they do at least tell you what the case is about. This is the front page of it, and perhaps on this it's useful to draw your attention to the very bottom paragraph, delivered the 22nd December 1881 by Mr. Satchel & Chapel of No. 6 Queen Street, Cheapside, in the City of London. Now, you'll find from time to time in the indexes that solicitors are mentioned by name. It appears normally to be the London solicitors who file the documents and they may be acting as agents for dozens of solicitors around the country. So whilst it's useful for narrowing down a particular case, not necessarily unique for your purposes. And they were agents for Allen and Davis of uh, Newcastle-upon-Tyne. And it tells us in the statement of claim to have the, the trust of the said will and codicil of the testator carried into execution and his real and personal estate administered and the rights and interests of all persons therein ascertained and declared. To have the residuary personal estate of the testator secured in court and in the meanwhile to have a receiver thereof appointed. There was then a statement of defence. Again, not much in substance. The testator's will was proved in Durham, not in Newcastle, and the sum was slightly different from what was stated. The defendants do not intend and never intended to remove any part of the testator's assets out of the jurisdiction. This action, it says under three, is altogether unnecessary, but the defendants are ready to account therein. The real useful starting point, I would suggest, for our searches, because they're very well indexed, 
are in fact the entry books of decrees and orders. When the statement of claim and statement of defence had been filed, it the, came before a judge and he would make various orders as to what was to happen. And in fact, we will find in this particular case, there was a whole raft of them at the beginning. Then there's a silence for, I think it's a, almost 19 years, and then it springs back to life again. And we'll see that's fairly clear as to why that happens in a minute, but we'll look at those. They record the orders made by the court and they're described in a variety of ways. Don't ignore any of them. You might be tempted to ignore payments. I wouldn't advise it. Look at them all. Any may provide useful information. And there are indexes on the open shelves. If you go into the map room upstairs, you'll find a whole row of them. And if you look carefully for each year, you will find there are typically four volumes. Two labelled A and two labelled B. A covers causes of initial letters A to K, and B causes L to Z. And the two volumes, one and two, cover different time periods. Volume one, Hillary and Easter terms, and volume two, Trinity and Michaelmas. So for this particular one, we'll always be looking in the A book because it's recurry. And when you look in one of the books, this is the sort of thing that you will find. And it tells us and gives a date, it gives the name of the cause or matter, the type of order, it's a motion for judgment, and it records a, well, in the right-hand column, of course, the well-known 1881 C6439. Uh, I almost can recite, well, I hope I don't recite it in my sleep, but you'll notice the head of the column, it says printed or written. For quite a lot of the time period we're talking about, some of them were printed and some of them were handwritten and there are different volumes containing each. So you need to make a note of that. And of course, the reference number underneath. And we can get out the written 312, and here it tells us that the trusts in the will and the codicil should be performed, inquiries should be made as to whether the brothers are alive, and inquiries as to what issue are alive, and a whole raft of accounts have to be brought together. Not long afterwards, we will see, for instance, an order for payment. And as you can see here, they are definitely useful. If you're wanting to trace particular details about a family, then here we see who is receiving the money and on whose behalf. So number three, Robert Goodall. In right of his infant children, Robert Goodall, Alex Alexander Curry Goodall, Isabella Irving Goodall, and Jane Gibson Goodall. So quite a lot of information is given even in the orders for payment and they can be quite substantial. One of the later payment orders that goes down to the 60s I think and this is just uh, a portion of it. One of them is an account of Thomas Fletcher, an infant born the 3rd of June 1900 and another one Eleanor Jackson Spinster and it gives her address. You notice the one on the account of the infant that accounts for that very long gap in the middle. Money was due to infants. The infants could not claim it until they were 21. So there was something like a 19-year-odd gap whilst that came about. Now those orders, the ones that wanted information, it was collected in most part by affidavits. 
These are sworn statements of information requested by the court. Some are procedural matters. We serve this notice on so-and-so. But matters of substance, there most definitely are. And they're found in Affidavits J4. There are indexes in IND1, single volume per year, subdivided by the initial course, letter of the course name, and the entries are then arranged chronologically. And a typical index entry will tell us that filed on the 25th of October 1882 in the cause Recurry, affidavit number 5796, filed by Solicitor Satchel, who was the London agent, and there's a number 29, I've never quite, it's under the heading of folios, but I've never, it doesn't seem to be the number of folios, and it doesn't correspond to a folio and a volume because they're all loose documents anyway, so I've not figured that one out yet. And we will find here they do contain lots of information. Here's one. We, Mary Jane Dixon, one of the above-named plaintiffs, and Isabella Fletcher, the wife of the plaintiff, James Fletcher, severally make oath and say... We see here that it gives information about John Fletcher marrying Elizabeth May. We hear about the first wife dying. And the parts I've put in yellow, or highlighted in yellow, are the ones that find their way through to the master's report. There is more information in there, though. We find, after his first wife dies, John Fletcher, and I put it in quotes, married his deceased wife's sister. That, at that date, was not legal. And he went on and had a third marriage, which was a legal marriage. Now, I mentioned information that didn't find its way through to the master's reports. For example, that first marriage, we find out that it was on the 28th of November, um, 1854, at the parish church of Tymouth in the county of Northumberland. So don't assume that what you find in the master's report is everything. It's what the court wants to know, needs to know. And you may find a few surprises. Here's one, the affidavit of Mary Curry. And we see here, my daughter Mary Ann Curry was only once married, that is to say to Archibald Whale, on the 26th of June 1861, the parish church of St Stephen's South Shields aforesaid. The said Archibald Whale died on the 21st day of March 1869, and there's only one child of the said marriage of my said daughter, Mary Ann Whale, with the said Archibald Whale. That is to say, Archibald Whale. <laughs> Not much imagination, did they? But this lady goes on, Mary Curry, goes on to give a little bit more information about her daughter's activities. My said daughter, Mary Ann, during the lifetime of her said husband, Archibald Whale, namely on the first day of September 1867, contracted a bigamous marriage with one Christopher Taylor at the parish church of St Mary South Shields aforesaid. And it then, they produced the various certificates. The daughter was fairly safe because she was dead at this time. And we can see her first marriage certificate and these ones weren't actually preserved on the file, they must have been returned. So these have been taken from the original registers. Now depositions do exist and those of you who are more familiar with the pre-1875 material probably think of the depositions in terms of matters of substance. The depositions after 1875 are very small in quantity and they record oral evidence taken before special examiners usually on the content of an affidavit and their volume is very small compared with the earlier Chancery Court material. 
In this particular case, there was nothing that assisted our research in those. Uh, the substantive material was instead found in the affidavits themselves. They're indexed in IND1, and this is the sort of thing that you might find. This relates to another case, of course, deposition of a witness cross-examined in the above matter at Thornville Ride in the Isle of Wight before me, and uh, that then obviously answers to the questions that the examiner made. As a result of all those affidavits coming together, there was a report, in fact there was more than one, there were two in this case, carried out by a master of the Supreme Court, later termed the Chief Clerk. They're found in a series called Reports and Certificates, J57. And again, they're indexed in IND1, a single volume per year, subdivided by the initial letter of the cause name, and the entries then are arranged chronologically. And an entry might tell us that for the quarter January, March 1884, there was a report produced on the directions of Mr Justice Kay. The reports are arranged alphabetically then by cause name. So let's have a look at that. In pursuance of the directions given to me by the Honourable Mr Justice Kay, I hereby certify that the results of the accounts and inquiries which have been taken and made in pursuance of the judgment in this action, dated the 18th day of February 1882, and the order dated the 3rd day of August 1882, is as follows. And we'll start at D. There's an A, B and C related to other of the children. But here we have the testator's late sister Jane Fletcher, in his will named, has had issue the following children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and no other issue, namely, it goes on, you think that's the end. The later report had great-great-grandchildren. <laughs> there are also results of inquiries related to household furniture, which, because the master was asked to produce uh, lists of personal and real estate and again there are several pages of this the entry for the dining room lists all of this furniture incredible detail you could almost reconstruct it couldn't you and also schedules related to real estate in South Shields and real estate in Edinburgh because he had property in Edinburgh as well as in South Shields and also accounts Worth a look, and worth a look fairly carefully. You remember this gentleman had a widow? He didn't have any children, and there's no mention so far of his widow. Did she have money in her own right? Was she provided for at all? Well, under Scottish law, she is entitled to a third of the income from his property. The widow's terse. And the only mention we find is actually in these accounts. And it simply says terse there, and that's not an observation on the uh, uh, <laughs> brevity of the entry. She got one-third of the income from his two houses in Edinburgh. I mentioned petitions. From time to time, parties will want to ask the court to order a particular course of action. And they would make this in the form of a written petition. And they're to be found in series J53. And there are indexes, again, in IND1, though not often worth using the indexes because you can access them directly, because the index to decrees and orders will likely say petition, and the order will say upon the petition of, and the order will be usually within a few days of the petition. So fairly straightforward 
to note those. That's one perhaps general point to, to note is that all these court documents, master's reports particularly, and orders and decrees, are very precise in mentioning the basis on which things are done. So if there have been previous orders, it will mention them and it will give a date on them. So if you're looking through the indexes, check back when you find an order to make sure you haven't missed one. And the petitions are arranged quarterly up to 1888, then half yearly, then annually, and then alphabetically by cause name. <coughs> and this one is a petition from William Curry and James Curry, two of the brothers, and it mentions that the said Robert Curry, that's the, another one of the brothers, died on the 23rd of August 1888 in test and letters of administration to his estate uh, were granted on the 30th of October 1888 to his widow, Emma Curry. And they wanted the court to order a sum paid to her and the residue to be divided between them. Now I mentioned that one of the things that the court was ordering were for reports to be produced. And we've seen the master's reports and we've seen the actions that the court took. The order for them to be created were in the orders, uh, decrees and orders, and the resultant actions, of course, would be in the decrees and orders. But there are a range of master's papers that he generated in the course of compiling his reports. There could be accounts, there could be draft orders, there could be pedigrees. They're to be found in a variety of series, and they're only partly arranged. And you'll find, if you're interested in, in a family, then there are many pedigrees, and many of them, not all of them, are indexed in the catalogue. First, you need to find the master's name. And that's fairly straightforward, because it's given at the bottom of his report. If you can read his signature, that is. A gentleman, William Binns Smith. His records are filed under a successor master. They were passed from one master to another, and they eventually came here. Until six months or so ago, the catalogue only gave the final master and not all the intermediate ones. That has now been rectified. And if you look in the catalogue under the master's name, you'll find out what the successor was and where the papers are. So those for William Bin Smith are filed under those of Master Ridsdale. Nice to have that, isn't it? That was as a result of the order in 1882, and it was compiled in 1884. You haven't seen it all yet. 1905, the last of the brothers had died, so another one was produced, and another one. And apart from the one in the top right-hand corner, which is supposed to cover all the offspring, those other three are just the descendants of one of the brothers or sisters. But it doesn't have all the information on it. For instance, you remember John Fletcher married Elizabeth May, and then when she died, he married her sister, which wasn't a legal marriage, and then went on to marry a third lady when the second, in quotes, wife died. No mention in those pedigrees of the marriage to the deceased wife's sister. But there is to the bigamous marriage. <laughs> and I didn't put the exclamation marks on. <laughs> you find also that there was a registrar who had a, a somewhat more lowly role than registrars in the courts today. He sat in the court making notes for 
writing up the orders and actions and whatever that had to be carried out. And he had court books and minute books, and they're J56, arranged by the registrar's name and then by the law term. The clue to those comes from the order, and you'll see there, for instance, says Mr. Leach, registrar, folio 118. Now, be warned, they don't all seem to survive. There aren't always entries in the books that I'm going to show you an instance of, even with a folio number. And also, down the bottom, this little rubber stamp has got his name on as well. That's his lovely little notebook that he keeps whilst in court. Beautifully bound and so on. Inside there are his, well, his handwriting is almost as bad as mine. Little notes there that are necessary for writing up the orders, official orders that he's going to present to the judge for signature. You may also find other clues from there, so read orders carefully. The proceedings in the Scotch courts. Oh, somewhere else we should be looking. Well, if you remember, John Curry actually had property in Edinburgh. Scottish law is totally and completely separate from English law. So to be able to dispose of that property, they had to go and seek permission from the Scottish courts. And if you look on the website of the National Archives of Scotland, you'll find reference to a petition and you can get a copy of that telling us all about the particular property, where it is and its value and so on. And authorising one of the executors and trustees to actually sell the property. I mentioned exhibits. I didn't find anything personally of use there. They were evidence produced or deposited in court and unclaimed either because of want of a single owner or somebody just forgotten about them. Um, they're found in series J90. Worth a look. The last main batch of material that's here relate to the Court Funds Office, which is in the process of being transferred here. It's rested with the Court Funds Office What's the earliest material? 1760, is it? Uh, 1726. But hasn't come here because it was still in current use. Hmm. So, it's on the way here. I say recently transferred. There is some material here, but there's some key material not. And I'm going to be... There's about 500 linear feet of it, which is quite a lot of space. Uh, some here, some... A lot of Cheshire. 1726, I stand corrected on. The ones up to 1841 are going to be in C-series. The ones from 1842 onwards, when there was a major reorganisation in the Chancery Court, are in J-series. After 1875, which was what I'm particularly interested in, the key series are accounts, J337. They are not yet through their accessioning process, so you can't order those up, but I'll show you some examples from them. The indexes to the accounts only seem to exist up to 1909. They're arranged by the course name in series J340, and those are here. There are some registers called carrying over in series J341. Those have arrived here, or to be more precise, they've arrived at Winsford in Cheshire, and you can order them up at three days' notice from there. And I'm also going to show an example of registers of directions for payment of principal monies. Those haven't actually been selected for preservation, but all the remaining records which have not been selected are still with the Ministry of Justice, and you can always ask them.
Now, how do you locate the correct register or ledger? Well, first of all, they've been divided into time periods. Well, that shouldn't be too difficult. They're also then arranged by division. Four divisions covering particular portions of the alphabet according to the cause name. So the one we're interested in, recurry, will be in division one. And then they've been subdivided in the various volumes according to the first letter of the plaintiff's name. So for example, C or A to C, plus the first letter of the defendant's name. So they should be named C versus A for, let's say, Curry versus Alexander. Or it might say CVA-DVG. So those would be ones beginning with C, where the plaintiff is named C, versus ones with the defendant A, right the way through to those with the plaintiffs beginning with D, but only up to defendants with the letter G. And you'll find some confusing ones which just say things like GG, and that should be the plaintiff's name and the defendant's initial letter. So you need to keep your wits about you. And then the account number, which you would get from the various indexes, and they cover a range of numbers for a particular time period, for a particular division, for a particular range of course titles. So once you've worked your way through that little maze, you can order the volumes up. Now let's have a look and see how the various series interrelate. First of all, there would be typically an order made by the judge for a particular action related to funds, and these would be written in a set of directions. The directions haven't been preserved, but that would result then in the creation of an account. In this case, one overall account, recurry Fletcher versus Goodall, and that should be found in J337. It happens to be number 22930. When they run out of space or run out of time in there, they'll transfer it just to another ledger, and there will be a reference in it saying carried forward to account number 7825. And that can happen at any point in time, and there can be any of them. This case, having many accounts, as we saw from the payments, will start to split. So the overall account is subdivided into initially, I think it's 49 or 42 individual accounts. The account of Jubiliana Dixon and John Fletcher and whatever. They'll each have their individual accounts. And there's one related to the property in Scotland. And there will be cross-references between those in the various ledgers. As each of the individual accounts runs out of space or time, they carry it forward to another one and so forth. Now, how do you find your way through that morass? Well, first of all, you look in the indexes. And they will give you the account numbers up till 1909. We haven't found any indexes after that. But if you can pick up something before 1909, you can follow the references given in the registers. And you can also, where an account is split in some way, there's registers of carrying over in series J341, which are arranged by date, and that will tell you that we have carried over some money from account 7825 to account 16741. It only does those with substantive ones, so where it's a sort of overflow, for lack of a better word, you won't find those, apparently. And I mentioned the registered direction for payment of principal money, which is effectively orders to pay out sums of money, and those would quite often, or should refer, to the account 
from which the money is being paid. But those, again, are amongst those that haven't been currently selected. Okay, you get one of the index to account ledgers, and you find something like this. And there are all the entries in there related to this case. Let's have a look at the one at the top. It gives 1881 C6439 proceeds rehouses in Scotland 16731. Fine. And then at the bottom, a whole set of accounts. First of all, the one at the very top gives the overall account numbers, and then the ones for the various individuals. And there are, see there on the top, 22930 is the initial account carried on in 7825. And then, there, as I said, there are individual ones for the individual accounts for individual beneficiaries. And that's carried on on the second page because there's lots of these. Now, when you go and look at one of the accounts, you'll find that's number 5721, which is one of the ones listed there. You will find on the left-hand side, they are monies paid out. And at the bottom, it, will, it shows monies carried forward to, and then it will give another account number from there. And on the right-hand side, it's the name of the account, where the balance came from, the various payments, and at the bottom, it should have given the, uh, well, we'll see it on this one in a minute, where the carried foot. So let's have a look at that again, and I will highlight the various cross-references that you will see in there. The account number, the name and cause, where the next account that it was being carried forward to, references to the registers of principal payment, and doesn't actually give an account number, it just says C, relevant register, but the date is the one which will help you there. And on the right-hand side, reference back to the previous account, it does, of course, give you, sorry, at the top, the name of the particular account. Now, the carryings over I mentioned, and here we see, for instance, money going from the proceeds of the sale of two houses in Scotland to the main account for this particular case. And also, when the payments were made from the main account for the case to those for the, all the various individuals. And there are three pages of those. The principal payment ledgers can sometimes be helpful as a way in, particularly if we're talking about after 1909, because they give us there, for instance, the date of the order, so you can tie that up with a J15, and it ties up then with the reference to the accounts. So that can be a useful way in if you haven't got anything before 1909. Okay, how do we get into all this? How do we know to start looking? Well, there's indexes to and reports in the Times, but that generally is only the principal important cases. Law reports again similarly. Indexes to dormant funds in Chancery? Yes, but not very many. Everybody, or lots of people, optimistically think, oh, there's money left in Chancery. Mm, 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 mm. Estate duty office registers, if it's uh, related to a will. Read the fine print. And the London Gazette quite uh, often has announcements. So those I'm going to have a look at for a second. Here's an estate duty office register. 
related to the payment of estate duty on the will of, of John Curry. And on the left-hand side, it gives basic details about the proving of that will. And then if we move across, we'll find details of the main beneficiaries, which are the brothers. But lurking amongst all those fine print of numbers, which if you ask anybody, they say, oh no, that refers to correspondence that doesn't survive. And in 99.9% .9 of the case, that is precisely what they are. But read it carefully. It says, in chancery, 1881, C6439, John Curry, deceased Fletcher versus Goodall. The taxman was interested. The other thing that you might find useful, I've been showing you, or showed you at the beginning, the register copy which you will get from the probate registry of the will of John Curry. Nothing wrong with that, but let's have a look at the original will, which if you want to, you can ask them to supply you with a copy of. You have to be specific, and it's sensible to give a reason. And the reason I gave, because I wanted to see whether there were any annotations on it. Oh, yes, there are. Not on the register copy. Some of them relate to the proving of it. This is the testamentary paper referred to, etc. But at the top, Fide Curry and Curry versus Kirkley. Well, I've never found a case of that name, but having found that, I would start looking for a case, even if it wasn't that cause name. So, worth a try. The London Gazette, for this particular case, does have one announcement that's as a result of the order uh, in 1882 asking for details about the deceased's accounts and whether anybody had any claim on the money and there was an announcement made in the London Gazette. Just the single announcement for the whole time period of this case. Well, I hope I've given you an insight into what you could find. You're not going to find that for everyone. It came up with five generations, 250 individuals. But I would suggest that's a rarity, but does make my point that Jarndyce versus Jarndyce isn't dead. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This event was recorded live on the 2nd of September 2010 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.